We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah again, a, a series that we began uh, last week, a new term, new series, a new book of the Bible for us, um, for a new season. So again, we're going to read the whole of chapter one and we're going to look at um, the next section that we, we began from last week. Here we go. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants to delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So as we began to look at last week. For those who were here, we uh, have begun in this book of, of Nehemiah. We've seen that the, the, the nation of Israel, God's people, at this point, are poised at a time of new beginning, a new season, a new time, a new day. Uh, they'd been exiled, kind of for about a generation, really. They'd been, uh, because of their rebellion against God, um, the Babylonians had conquered them, and many of them killed and then take those who survived, taken off, scattered amongst uh, a vast swathe of territory in the Middle East and beyond, away from Jerusalem, away from their promised land, away from the presence of God. They are a, a, an, just a bunch of aliens in someone else's country. No one really knows or cares about them. Um, and uh, it's a desperate situation. And so we've got uh, Nehemiah and others would have been in, in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian uh, Empire. And uh, things have been bleak. But, as I say, it seems that there's, it's poised for a new beginning. Uh, Ian referred earlier on to how uh, Ezra and some others had already gone back. They'd already been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And they'd focused on, on rebuilding the temple that had been absolutely laid to waste. Um, by their captors before then. They, they'd had permission to go and do that, to go and restore the temple. And so now we're a bit further down the line, and, and Nehemiah, uh, in his influential position in Susa, um, serving the, the king of that empire, um, then 
has this uh, encounter with Hinani, one of his brothers, and asks him. He's eager to know um, what's going on. And we often see in the Bible a kind of similar pattern unfolding. There's a new beginning with all its excitement, with all its possibility, with all the opportunity that it presents. God's doing something. New life is bursting out. Something's happening. Something is being built. But then there comes a setback. Discouragement comes in. We looked at that last week, didn't we? About that, the devastating report that uh, Nehemiah receives. The walls are down. The city is still in a state. It's ruined, really. Yes, some progress has taken place, but ah, oh, it's still not habitable, really. It's still not secure properly. Still not the joy of the whole earth. Well, it is, but it's not in the sense it should be. Um, and so, there we have it. A new beginning and setback. The pattern then is that God gets hold of someone or a group of people and they pray. They spend time with God. They seek his face. And that's what Nehemiah does. The new, there's a new beginning, but there's a setback. And he spends time with God. Again, we, we began to look at that last week, how he could have just turned away. He could have just thought, no, that's it. The dream's over. Forget it now. I'll just give my life here in Susa. I'm, I'm forgetting about Israel. I'm forgetting about Jerusalem. I'm forgetting about that, that it was always supposed to be, promised to be, the city of God, the joy of the whole earth. But no, I'm leaving that behind now. The time for dreaming dreams is over. What I'm going to do instead is just cope here where I am. That's what Nehemiah could have done as he encountered that setback. But what he did instead was he turned to God rather than away from God. He leant in and he spent time. And I want to just spend this morning looking at a few things, a few features really of the time that Nehemiah spent with God. We, we kind of get... We kind of get it described. I think we kind of get a summary of what he prayed. Because, after all, he, it was, this was for some days. For some days, he was mourning and fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I don't think it took him some days to kind of very slowly uh, kind of read through this prayer. Um, but this kind of represents what he was pouring out to God. And so the, the first thing, first kind of feature, if you like, the first characteristic of, of Nehemiah's time with God in this particular season is this. It's painful. It's a painful prayer. It's a painful time. This is in the style, what we have written here, is in the style of a lament. And uh, my, my way of just describing it quickly would be, Oh God, you're in heaven. On the earth, there is a whole heap of mess. A whole heap of rubble. Some of that mess is my mess. Some of that mess is my doing. Because he goes on, doesn't he? He's, he's kind of confessing his own sin. He's confessing his own part to play. He's saying, this is not just about... Those people who've done something wrong, those people a generation or so ago who turned away from God and rebelled from him. Actually, this involves me. This involves what I have been like. 
I've been caught up in this. I've had my part to play. We all have acted wickedly in this. I'm involved. And my father's household was involved. So there's a whole heap of mess. Oh God, some of it's mine. Forgive me. But then also, and God, would you remember what you said? Would you remember what you told us? What you told us is if this is exactly what would happen. If we were so consistently unfaithful to you, we would be scattered amongst the nations. We'd, we'd lose that place to worship. And we'd be scattered. You told us, you warned us. Many times you tried to grab, grab our attention with prophets that we ignored. But we did exactly that. We, we ignored them. We turned away. We thought you were joking. We thought it was just pretend. Now we realize, actually, there were consequences to all the stuff that we were doing. And uh, that's what happened. But you told us, Lord God, that if we return to you and obey your commands, then even then, even if we're scattered here, there, and absolutely everywhere, you will be faithful to your promises. You'll gather us back. You will restore your plans for a city that reflects your glory. The city of God. The joy of the whole earth. So that's the kind of thrust of his, of his prayer. Now again, I kind of wonder, how would we, how would I, how would you respond to someone like Nehemiah? He is absolutely devastated by what he's heard. And again, how would we respond? The, the, the reason for asking the question is, I think if you were to spend time with Nehemiah, his mourning, his fasting, his praying, whilst not on kind of public display for the whole world to see, if you'd been a fly on the wall, I think you would have seen a man whose heart was just bursting out of his chest, whose prayers were just an emotional, painful, tear-ridden expression of, God, won't you do something? Sometimes I think we respond to tears a little differently. And we think that um, if, 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 if someone is emotional, maybe because they've encountered a setback themselves, our, our job, our role as supportive believers and disciples and brothers and sisters around them is to quickly try to put their, our arm around them in such a way as to quickly help them to stop crying because that will indicate they're okay because perhaps in this culture at least that's what we tend to do we don't really tend to go in for big displays of emotion maybe things like the olympics or kind of big sporting events or occasions where kind of national grief has been kind of prompted, then every now and again, you know, in a rare occasion as a nation, there might be, when Diana passed away, there was flowers just in in loads of cities right around this nation. It was unusual because we didn't, as a nation, tend to do that. We didn't tend to do great shows of public emotion. And on a personal level, we can kind of be the same. We don't tend to do big shows of emotion. Or upset. If we do, we need to quickly compose ourselves. Stuff it back up. Act like it didn't happen. No, we're okay now. We're fine. And actually, the, the way that you just quickly came to pray for me and you helped me kind of 
compose myself and quickly shovel it all back up and pretend like nothing's happening. Thank you so much for doing that. I, I kind of wonder whether we wouldn't necessarily articulate that, but that it might just form the background in our thinking to occasions like last week when people are responding to God. God's doing something, but maybe it's, it's different for different people and emotion is involved. I kind of wonder when, when God wants to do something fresh amongst his people, move in a new way, Actually, there can be times where there are profound releases of emotion. Because maybe just on a human level, ordinarily we're a little bit self-conscious. We keep things under wrap. But when God comes, he kind of undoes us. And that just allows us to do perhaps what we should have already done. Which is bear our soul before him. And tears are okay. And so... The goal of supportive friendship and wise counsel is not quickly, wipe it away, pretend you're all right, and get on with life. Nehemiah, I think, is just pouring his guts out before God. And it's painful. Well, but we don't really want, do we want that? Okay, this week, people, let's, let's spend some time with God. It's going to be painful. It's not kind of fundamentally, obviously encouraging. But here, God is doing something. God is, is stirring something. This emotion, this pain is involved, but that's not all that it's about. God is doing something. Nehemiah is praying out these, these passionate, urgent prayers. Let your ear be attentive. It's kind of saying, day and night, I've been bringing this before you. Again, it, it kind of follows... A pattern, a pattern of, there's a new beginning, there are setbacks, God's people pray. But it isn't necessarily painless. And so we see that, I think, in the book of Acts. Acts itself is a book describing a time of new beginning. The church just emerges, is, is, is born, really, after Jesus' death, his resurrection. He then ascends to heaven. He promised he'd send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost suddenly, bang, a church explodes where there hadn't been one really. There'd been about 120 believers. Now there is about 3,120 believers. Uh, A church has begun, a new beginning. Ah, Acts chapter 4, setback. Some of God's people, Peter and John, dragged before the Sanhedrin. They're threatened. Um, I'm sure they get a beating as well. But I should have checked that in more detail before standing up here. Um, what was the people's response going to be? A new beginning, wonderful, opportunity, excitement, growth, expansion, brilliant, and a setback. Two of the leaders have just been beaten up, threatened, and we've all, by virtue of that, been threatened. We could get intimidated, we could shrink back, we could turn away from God. But then what do they do in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 24? Well, 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond? When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through your servant, uh, our father David, and and so on. Um, And they're asking, increase our boldness. We're still going for it. That was their response. That was Nehemiah's 
response. He's, he's praying. He's also fasting, which is uh, just something just briefly to touch upon. Why fast? Why, in other words, kind of go without food? Possibly he's just praying so much he's distracted from it. But actually this is something that God's people did or do at particular times, it would seem. Uh, if you were at the prayer meeting on Friday, um, I think Richard read out a passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where again, God's people have hit a crisis point. What do they do? Jehoshaphat calls everyone together. They want to inquire of God. What should we do? There's this army that's against us. How should we handle it? And because they've got that question in their minds, the, all the people gather and they pray and they fast. And it's kind of like, God, we're not doing this to kind of impress you in a sense, to, to develop a good reputation or to appear holy. We're fasting as a particular way of saying, in this circumstance, Lord God, what's the answer? What should we do? What's the next step? How should we respond? Reveal it to us. And as the people are fasting and praying, then by prophetic word, someone's kind of bringing what, what God is saying to them. This is the way God's leading. And the battle is the Lord. And he's advancing. We're going to go into this battle, but worship is going to lead the way. And we're going to see how God delivers us. The answer comes. And fasting, it's not earning spiritual brownie points. It's, oh God, we really need an answer. Specifically on this thing. Speak to us, Lord God, about this. So, Nehemiah's time with God, what was it like? It was pained in some way. That wasn't comfortable in many ways. But, God's doing something. This is producing something. He turns to God, and it's not just going to stay there. It doesn't just stay in gloomy isolation. Wonderful. Time with God. No, it's, it, this is going somewhere. This is leading on. And, uh, and we might know times, personally, or as a church, of, of lament or of pain as we pray. That's not the cue to just shrink back. It's actually, maybe God's doing something new. Maybe God just wants to stir in us a new type of prayer, a new way of speaking to him. Uh, maybe he's going to reveal, like he did to Nehemiah, New dreams, old dreams, vision for the future and the way ahead, even though it's painful at the time. But it's more than that. It's more than just a painful time. Nehemiah's time with God was also, I think, richly and deeply personal. Before the exile took place, a problem had developed. And the problem was this. The people could go to the temple, people could make sacrifices, people could worship, but they could treat that all a little bit like a system. In other words, it wasn't personal. It wasn't about personal relationship with God and, and therefore, I'm going to take part in, in, in various things that are going on in the nation. Actually, it's just, there's a God out there somewhere. We're his people. Um, and to keep him happy and to deal with our own guilt, we, we've been provided with these hoops. Um, and if we jump through them, then we're okay. 
And basically, we can kind of live life as we want to. We've done what we need to. We've done, we've done what's expected of us. And we can kind of live at peace with ourselves, knowing that we've done our bit. We've paid our dues. And that's kind of where the, the nation had got to at that point. A kind of collective, religious, going through the motions. Go up to the temple, sacrifice, praise your God, go back home, do whatever. So periodically, they could get right with God. They could deal with their guilt. But whilst kind of getting right with God in a moment, they weren't necessarily then staying right or growing right or growing closer actually to the God God said I, I want to deliver you out of Egypt I want to deliver you out of slavery so that you might come and work so you might worship me so that you might know me you're my treasured people you're my treasured possession well they'd started to miss the points so that, oh, I'm just going to jump through this hoop sacrifice there sing a song there do something else over there I'm covered for the year wicked well, actually, that's what they were. <laughs> that's what they were. That's what they were becoming. And um, in, in many ways, actually, that's my own personal story. My formative years were spent occasionally getting right with God and, and going through the motions, doing what I thought Christians did. Actually... It didn't really make much odds to me most of the time that I spent over here. Um, it wasn't nine to five at that point. It was more like nine to half past three because I was at school. Um, but mo- most of life was just spent hoping I'd, hoping I'd done enough over here. Because God's out there somewhere, but he's quite distant. And all that I needed to do was just make sure I paid enough dues. I did what was expected of a good Christian boy, because that's what I was. So I thought, um, and, and that would be it, that would be fine. And I was part of the worship team, and uh, I didn't play guitar then. Uh, I played the euphonium, and uh, yeah, thumbs up for euphonium. Okay, I won't diss a euphonium. You know, I enjoy playing the euphonium quite a lot. If you don't know what a euphonium is, don't worry too much. But it's, it's kind of roughly the shape of a tuba, but it's a little bit smaller. It's still quite a handful, so uh, it's, it's kind of like that. And um, that was my contribution to the worship team. And all in all that I'm about to say, I am not, Lorraine, I'm not dissing the euphonium, okay? Beautiful instrument. However, I kind of had the thought that really church life, Christian life, turn up, do the necessary, make a sacrifice of praise. That will keep our distant God happy for another week. And then we go back and we do whatever we want. So... It didn't really matter whether your heart was in it or not. We just, it was important to sing some songs and um, then go and grab a coffee. Wonderful. So, because I enjoyed playing euphonium so much, there was no thought in my mind, particularly, about what God might want to do in this meeting. By virtue of the fact that I was on the rotor for that Sunday, God had already decided that he wanted the euphonium to be played very, very loudly, especially if there was a hymn. And I, cher- I cherished the hymns. Because I thought, yes, I can really sock it to them now. With this great... And so I would just drown. Drown worship. 
with, with my attempts. And that was jumping through the hoop. That was fine. That was okay. Extra brownie points if you hit some right notes. And then God, who is distant, far removed, is pleased for another week. We have kind of kept in his good books. Now we can go and do whatever and return to it. That was my kind of understanding. And then I don't know exactly the, the, the timeline. I don't know exactly how it came about. But uh, the guy who was heading up the worship team, who might have just stepped into that role or not, I can't remember, a guy called Jonathan, uh, he gathered the team together. And he spoke about his vision for worship in the church. And he, he kind of, he was talking about what he saw it being and what he hoped for us to be doing. And he was smiling. He was saying some great stuff. But in the process of it, I realized I was hearing somebody who had an authentic relationship with God, who was speaking out of having really spent time with him, who was talking about worship, which, you know, as it says in, in the Bible, it's like making music, but in our hearts to God. It's not just making music. It's, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from a real place, of, a real place of relationship, a real place of intimacy, a real place of knowing God and enjoying him. And I realized that that was authentic and that I wasn't. And I was devastated. He was saying this great stuff, and I don't know what he made of it, but I and another couple of the young people in the worship team, we were a wreck. Because God was taking this moment to convict me and some of my friends, there's more than this. I'm not just after a bit of your time. This is, this is personal, God says. Or at least it is for me. You, remember, you might remember what Deborah said earlier on about being passionate for you. Your name, my passion for you has not changed. Well, God's saying that to us this morning. God was saying that to Nehemiah. God was saying that to God's people. He's saying, I've not changed. My passion for you has not changed. But where have you gone? Or what are you doing? Is this just the jumping through the hoops? Is this just keeping up appearances? Is this just putting on a bit of a show? Well, at that time, for me, it was. It was just that. Until God came in. Really cut me to the heart. I said, no. And that was part and parcel of, of my story, I suppose. A new beginning. Something was stirring. Actually, that was a painful time. I didn't want to know that. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want God to hold up a mirror and show me what my own heart was like. You self-righteous so-and-so. I should have concluded uh, much sooner. Um, that was painful. But actually, it was part and parcel of God doing something new. God stirring. Actually, it wasn't just me at the time. It was other people kind of... 14, 15, 16 in that church at that time, that God was just putting his finger on in a similar way. Not to leave us there, not to leave us in that kind of like, oh my goodness, that's what I'm really like. Not to leave us there, but we had to realize that, I had to realize that, so that he could draw me from there and say, look, actually, I'm passionate about you. Well, that was news to me. What? I, I thought, God, that you were distant. I thought that you were far away. I thought you didn't really care that much i just play my euphonium um but you actually want to relate with me you want to have a relationship with me that's what god was trying to say to the whole nation indeed he was saying to the whole nation they didn't just just didn't pay attention very well to start with so think about it for nehemiah he can't go to the temple he can't go make a sacrifice he can't go join in those big celebrations now maybe some people would group together 
But what he's done, what this is evidence of, is he has been cultivating a genuine, honest, real relationship with God. Now, I don't know. Maybe at this point, or before this point, he wasn't massively in the habit of um, of having a, a kind of personal, private time of praying and just reading the scriptures and all the rest of it. I hazard a guess that he did, but I don't know. His job was fairly influential. I don't know if he made it every week to his version of a core group. Who knows? But what seems to be the case is a vibrant personal relationship with God. Oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. He's convinced of what God is like. A covenant-keeping God. A loving God. A faithful God. A gracious God. He perhaps, I think, understood that this is not just about jumping through some hoops, having a arm's length relationship with God this is not about me doing something that means God will be pleased with me for another week at least I hope this is God is so much bigger than the current situation I am in God is so much bigger than all the mess God is so much bigger than the fact that we can't make sacrifices for the sin for sins at the moment so in that sense kind of our our guilt almost could be seen to be hanging over us still God's so much bigger than the systems that we might put our faith in that me, I, right now, can relate to him. I can speak to him because of his grace. His grace, his love, his kindness, his faithfulness. The fact that when he says something, is true. The fact that when he promises something, we can take it as reliable. So it's personal. Jesus demonstrated when he came, another new beginning when Jesus comes on the scene, demonstrates what seemed to many of the religious people at the time, a completely scandalous, personal relationship with Almighty God. We see in John John 5, for example, John 5 verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, like healing people, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried to tried harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is, this is a scandal. This is blasphemy. He's calling God... His father. Now they would have understood that God, in a more distant way perhaps, was, was father to the whole nation. Okay? Israel, my son. God was the father. So they understood that collectively. But it was a scandal to think it applied personally. I can't, I can't call God my father. I can't be so presumptuous as to say that I'm I'm that close to him, or that he's that close to me. Jesus comes along, and he reveals yeah, a completely unique relationship with God the Father, because he was equal 
to the Father. He is the one and only Son. But as people received the good news, as people believed in his name, what did they receive? The right to call God Father, the right to become a child. And this changes everything. This blows people away. So Paul writes to the Galatians in one place, in Galatians chapter 4. And verse 4, Paul writes there to a church that has perhaps begun to forget, begun to forget this. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who, who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So we're, we're not called to be slaves to the system. Jump through the hoops, keep up appearances, keep God sweet for another week, and you'll remain in his good books. God, through his one and only son, has given us the right to receive that, receive sonship for ourselves. I think that's what God was doing for me. I wouldn't have articulated it like this. But really, I was a slave. A bit of a slack slave, but I would try and do the necessary and then get some time off. And uh, that was my understanding of a relationship with, with God. Very distant. I just had to do the right things and, and achieve and, and, and try and earn his favor. And God was doing something new. And God was just reminding me or showing me that which I hadn't understood before. That's not what I have in mind. God will say, I'm interested in you. I want to draw you in. And the, the position I want you to know is, is this, where you can call me Father. You can call me Abba. It's a cry of, of intimacy. It's a cry of, of I, I belong to you, Lord. You're not going to disown me. You're not going to push me away. I'm not a slave who's just going to get the sack when I don't perform well enough. I'm a son. I'm always going to be part of your family because you're always going to be faithful and you're always going to keep your covenant of love. And uh, so Nehemiah, he's not just kind of maintaining a system. He's engaging with a real God. And I, I kind of wonder in some part and parcel of what we've already heard as we've been worshipping this morning, whether that's the thing now, there might be a few things. If that's the thing that God wants to reveal to you, reveal to us this morning, or remind us of this morning. Simple, isn't it? Sometimes the talk of a personal relationship with God can sound so cliched. Um, it can sound like, oh, just it sounds like people being given the spiritual right to just say it's all about me. It's me, me, me. It's, it's my life, this is kind of about me and, and my hopes, my aspirations, my dreams, my worries, my anxieties. I've got a God now to personally come and shore me up and, and help me achieve my potential and, uh, and, and take hold of uh, what will fulfill me. And he's like, oh, no, no, I don't. Let's just set that kind of idea aside. And we'll see in a moment, that's not where it was leading for Nehemiah. His time with God wasn't 
introspective. It wasn't leading him into that kind of self-centered way of thinking and praying. Nevertheless, maybe God this morning wants to highlight, I am interested in you. I've got this big vision. I have big plans for my people. But it does actually involve you. And I do actually know your name. And I do actually know the numbers of hairs on your head. I do actually know what you're carrying right now. And again, there's a number of things just coming through in the time of worship. If God prompts some people, I think God wants to just share this. It's easy to focus on the problems. It's easy to focus on the walls are down. Just remember, there's this. we have been brought into a place of worship. Just remember that. If God just sees fit to prompt, to prompt someone to say, my passion for you has not changed. I know you by name. Just remember that. If God just wants to drop that in. If God wants to, to drop in other things about, actually, I, I know the weights that you are carrying. I'm going to build my church. Well, sometimes we can feel like we've just got this tiny little light. And we can feel intimidated or, or threatened by the circumstances of life, of life. God just wants to say, I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I'm with you. I am light. I'm not a faint, flickering wick that the storms of your life might just about blow out. If you don't put it in a jar or try and keep it under a bowl or, or something to protect it. Ah, it's just a reminder of the bigness of God and the fact that he knows you, the fact that he knows me, the fact that he knows us, he loves us, he wants us. If we're not convinced of that, if that starts to kind of drift in our thinking, in our lives, we won't do what Nehemiah did. We won't kind of choose to, to turn to God and draw near to him. And have faith that he hears us. And know that as we pour out our hearts and everything that might be going on, that he really knows. And that he's not a God who forsakes. What we'll do is, again, let's just cope. Let's stop dreaming. Let's stop kind of coming to God. Let's just maybe put our faith in a system. Well, I'll go along. I'll, I'll go along to core group. I quite like the people. I really like the people. Um, and the coffee's good. Um, but actually, it's not really... I don't even, I'm, not, I'm not imagining this is really going to lift the lid off my life and project me, catapult me into fresh relationship with God. No, I'm, I'm just doing what we do. And that's the danger of exhorting and encouraging us. Oh, get along to the prayer meeting. We had a fantastic time. It's so great just to be together as a core group. Why don't you come along? If, if you hear that kind of exhortation or encouragement, but what you're feeling on the inside is, there's a distant God, I have to jump through some hoops. You're not helped, are you? <laughs> you're not blessed. You've just been given another hoop. And I know, but we don't want to be setting hoops before people point is, we want to help and support one another, cultivate a real, vibrant, 
relationship with God where we know we're totally free to pour our whole heart out before him knowing that he hears us and answers prayer. And so then what we do, what we choose to do is because, well, it's obvious, isn't it? I, I want to feed this relationship. I, I, I want to grow in, 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 in connection with Jesus. I, I want to, yeah, I want to glorify him. I want to worship him. I want to know him more. Not, I want to jump through some hoops. Now that might sound all a bit like, well, that, it kind of is a bit me, me, me then, isn't it? Well, this time that, that Nehemiah spends with God is painful, but it's personal. But it's also purposeful. It's full of purpose. What is the purpose? Well, Nehemiah isn't coming before God and saying, Oh God of heaven, me, me. Me. He's actually more like saying, Oh, God of heaven. You. 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 What do I mean? As he kind of comes to the, to the crux of his prayer, what is he saying? He's, he's, he's reminding himself, he's reminding God of his promise. What was his promise in verse 9? Or more particularly, kind of the end of verse 9. Oh, let's read it all. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. So the focus is God wants a dwelling place for his name and for his glory. And so as he then goes on, he's saying, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, this is all about you and your glory. Let your ear be attentive to my prayer and the prayers of others who are feeling the same kind of thing. Would you be glorified in there being a dwelling place for your name? Things aren't as they should be if Jerusalem is a complete wreck and no one can live there. And no, no godly society can grow there. That's not how things should be. It's right. Oh God, restore it then. We want there to be a dwelling place for your name, oh God, which gives you so much glory that actually it's not even just contained to one particular place. The whole world realizes there's something different about Jerusalem. There's something different about God's people. There's something fresh. There's something real. There's something vibrant. There's something good. There's something, God's demonstrating something tremendously wise by choosing a people and saying, I'm going to dwell in you. I'm going to dwell amongst you. And again, this is what was grabbing the attention of the apostles as they were writing to different churches um, uh, during the New Testament. Uh, and we see in particular Paul, for example, in Ephesians 2 describes, I suppose, the big picture, God's plan. Um, he says in, in, in Ephesians 2, verse 22, And in him, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And Paul's getting revelation on this, and he's realizing it's not just about Jews, it's about Gentiles too. It's not just for people who've been religious all their lives. This is for, for each and every person under the sun. This is a, available, that they can become part of. God's dwelling place. They can know his closeness. 
So in chapter 3 then, and verse 6 of Ephesians, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. This is a thing that's really gripping Paul. He's gripped, not with me, 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 but you, you, you. And because it's you, 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 it's God, I'm seeing, this is what you want to do. You want to draw people in from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, every background, every walk of life, every kind of different status or whatever, drawing everybody in to be part of one body, a people who know the presence of God and glorify him and demonstrate that glory to the whole world. And then what does he go on to pray in verse 14, chapter 3? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And you can go on and look at what Paul was praying it's an urgent prayer. It's a passionate prayer. It's a personal prayer. For this reason, I, I kneel before the Father. I'm coming before you, God. But it's full of purpose. This is, God, what are you doing? Where are you leading? Where are you taking us? It's big. And God wants a people who are his dwelling place, where he dwells by his spirit, so that then wherever they go, wherever they are, workplace, family life, school gate, being sent to another nation, they're carrying with them something completely different. They're kind of carrying with them the DNA, then something fresh can start up there too, um, of people experiencing and receiving receiving God. So there's, there's some pain. But it doesn't stop there. Actually, in the midst of tears, rather than us kind of try and just wipe them away quickly and compose ourselves... There's a new beginning. Something is stirring. God is doing something that is richly personal. Restoring and refreshing a relationship with God where we're not just maintaining a system. And as we do that, as we seek to cultivate, nurture, run after our relationship with God as a people together... We find that he opens our eyes to a bigger vision and our part to play in it. But perhaps for today, that's what God wants to highlight. Come on. You're, you're treasured. A people I love to be with. Don't make me into a system. Don't make me into a box. Don't just make me into some disjointed activities that we can do. Right, we've kept God sweet for another week. No, 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 no. This is it's, it's so much deeper. If that's in the midst of, of genuine, painful, heartache, uncertainty about the future, there might be a wonderful new beginning that you're very excited by, but a little bit nervous by. There might be just setback after setback and heartache after heartache. Either way... I think God was whispering to Nehemiah through all of that he heard, Hanani's horrendous report, come and spend time with me. Come and meet with me. Come and spend time with me in a place of worship. Come to me, not just to give me your prayers, but to receive or receive afresh 
the spirit of sonship given to you so that you know when you're praying, it's, oh, God, I know that you're my father. I know that I'm accepted. I know that I'm loved. I know that it's not a case of trying to jump through all those hoops. I, I know that I've got free access to come before you. I can be confident in that. I'm not confident in myself. In fact, actually, maybe part and parcel of what you're doing today is actually reminding me of things I need to repent of and confess and turn away from. My self-righteousness, my slightly loud euphonium playing that reflected a slightly bad heart. I'm turning away from all of that. Yet repentance and forgiveness is involved. But actually, God's just drawing. God's drawing, saying that I've planned for you more. Where you pray to me and I hear you, that always happens. And when you pray to me and I speak to you and you hear me, and that doesn't always happen. But by receiving a fresh spirit of sonship into our hearts, going, yes, Lord, in a refreshed relationship with him, throwing off all the baggage that can hinder and receiving again his grace and his love, we're enabled to walk into new beginning. We're enabled to walk into the place where vision becomes clear and suddenly we find ourselves on the road and we're moving, we're going, we're... We think, oh, God's commissioning me for whatever it might be at the school gates or in family life or in the nations of the world or in the workplace. Why? Because I know he's right here. I know he's right with me.